Hi there and welcome to Global Heart Church. Uh, I'm Jared Keane, the Senior Pastor, and wherever you are tuning in from around the world today, really, really hope and pray that in our planning of this message that it's going to really inspire you for the great journey that you are on and uh, for the great calling that you have in your own life. So enjoy the message and really pray that it's a blessing to you today. All right, well... We're going to get into it. We uh, were looking at two verses of Scripture this week at summer camp, and I thought we would share them with you. We have been talking about them, thinking about them, practicing them for the past few days, so we thought we'll see it out tonight at church. Uh, Is that okay with you? Come on. We are going to look at Romans 12, verses 1 to 2. So we'll read it first in the NIV. It says this, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good good, pleasing and perfect will. And at camp, we also looked at it in the message paraphrase, which is not really a translation, but it's very helpful when you're in use. So we're going to read that too, because it's very good. So here's what I want you to do, God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work and walking around life and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for Him. Don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognise what He wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings out the best in you, develops well-formed maturity in you. Good, right? Tonight we're going to talk about what it means to be a living sacrifice. Lives on the altar. Now, many of us have decided, we've had a moment in our life where we've decided, all right, I am in for God. I am here. I want to follow Jesus. Maybe that was in a service like tonight. Maybe you even walked uh, down the front of this very church and came down to the altar to say, God, I'm here. Have my life. Have everything. And uh, Pastor Amber is going to give us that opportunity tonight as well. Some of us will make that decision tonight. Some of us will come forward and do that tonight. And I would love us to think about what does it look like to never leave the altar? To live our whole life in that posture. I am here, God. Have my life. So here's the big thought for tonight. On the altar is the safest place to be. We're going to keep coming back to that. That's kind of our take-home thought. And uh, we're going to look at three ideas as to what a life on the altar looks like. So a life on the altar is a consecrated life. A life on the altar is a committed life. And a life on the altar is a content life. On the altar is the safest place to be. You ready? Come on. There is a well-known story in the book of Genesis uh, about Abraham and the sacrifice of his son, Isaac. It is this beautiful, beautiful, a little bit weird, very challenging, beautiful story. And now we're going to read it. And now this is a narrative story in the Old Testament about one of the fathers of our faith. So it is telling us about something that happened. It's not a guide for how to live. Uh, It's not something we're looking to imitate, like our Roman scripture, which is a letter, an instruction. But we can learn 
learn a lot from it. So we're going to pick up the story. It's quite late in Abraham's life. Now, this man has loved God. He has walked with God. He knows God. He's served Him. It hasn't been perfect, uh, but it's been real. And God has told Abraham that God's plan to rescue and bless the world is going to be through his very family. But the problem is that Abraham's wife, Sarah, was barren. She wasn't able to have children. And they're like, they're getting on. So it seemed very unlikely, but God promised them, you will have a son. And 25 years later, they finally had him. So we're going to pick up the story. Genesis 22, then God said, take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. This is the son uh, that Abraham had waited 25 years for. So God's saying to him here, all right, Abraham, the thing that you love most in the world, the fulfillment of the promise that you waited 25 years for, will you trust me when I'm asking you to give it to me? And basically uh, saying I'm setting out, it looks like I'm setting out to destroy everything that is your hope for the future. And Abraham does. Verse 3, early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the, pla uh, the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. So I, like, I imagine this is not a very nice feeling for Abraham, but his response to God was instantaneous, unwavering obedience. I struggle to comprehend that. I think most of us probably will. Doesn't even protest, he saddles up the donkey. Um, and we could actually talk a lot about what's going on in his heart and mind, but that is a different message. So we're going to keep going. Verse 9, when they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood can't even imagine. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said, do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. And Abraham looked up and there in the thicket, he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day, it is said on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. What a story, right? Beautiful, powerful, little bit weird, challenging, beautiful. We could talk for a very long time about the faithfulness of God that comes through that story, like mind-blowing. We could talk about the trust of Abraham, how open-handed he was. It's hard to understand. You know, some days I can't give God an hour of my time because I feel like it's more important that I complete my to-do list, you know. But Abraham freely gave God his son. That was the ticket to everything he ever wanted. But I want us to think just for a moment about Isaac. Because Isaac had some level of choice in what went down that day. 
Most scholars agree that Isaac was a fully grown adult in his 30s. Um, we definitely know that he was old enough to carry the wood on his back to make the sacrifice. And Abraham is old, old now. So if Isaac had wanted to wrestle him down, jump off the altar and run away, that would have been no contest. He could have done that. But he didn't. He allowed himself to be placed on the altar, ready to die. Now, I have no idea why he did that or what he was thinking. The text doesn't speak to that. But I do know this. The altar was the safest place for him to be. Now, it wouldn't have felt like that. It would have been petrifying. He would have, I'm sure, felt sick, perhaps felt betrayed by his dad. If you actually think about it, and probably don't think about it too much, it's quite horrific. But what Isaac had no way of knowing at the time was not only that he was going to live, he was going to bear the offspring that God had promised Abraham and the fulfillment of the promise, but he was also living in part of God's bigger picture to save the whole of humanity. And his life was pointing to Jesus as he lay there, tied up on some stones. Because hundreds of years later, just as Isaac bore the weight of the wood on his back for his sacrificed life and carried it up the mountain, so too would Jesus. Jesus, the ultimate sacrifice for humanity, would bear the weight of his own cross on his shoulders and climb up another mountain. And hundreds of years later, just as God provided a ram in the thicket to be sacrificed instead of Isaac, God would provide Jesus to be sacrificed instead of you and me and all of humanity. Isaac had no way of knowing it, but the altar was the safest place for him to be. And church, now we get to live our lives as part of that story if we choose, right? We all know this is a hectic, messed up world. And if we are honest, we will admit that we are all hectic and messed up on the inside as well. And the hectic mess, it started uh, in the beginning when we rejected God. We can read about that in Genesis, the first book of the Bible. We call the hectic mess sin. And Jesus coming to earth as an incarnated human was God's response to that. God's plan to save us from ourselves, from the hectic mess that separates us from Him because He loves us. For God so loved the world that He gave His Son. And when Jesus was on earth, He lived a human experience. He knows what it means to be human, the ups and downs, the highs and lows. The difference between us and Him, other than the fact that He is God, is that He did not sin. He was perfect, blameless, what you and I can never be. And that's why he was able to bear the weight of all our sin, all our hectic mess, and take the horror of that in our place. Colossians says he became sin for us because Romans says the wages of sin is death. But three days after he died, he was resurrected, defeating sin and death for good. And now we are invited to live in the story of God's restoration for the whole world. Life with him, knowing him, being loved by him right now and into eternity, bringing his kingdom to the world. That is what God did for us. So Romans 12 verse 1, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This salvation, this life that is available to us because of Jesus' death and resurrection, that is the therefore. That is the thing that precedes the response of being a living sacrifice. And so might I put to you tonight, church, just as being on the altar was the safest place for Isaac to be, as part of God's story in the world, your life on the altar and my life on the altar as part of what God is doing on the earth right now is the safest place for us to be. Come on.
It may not look like it, it may not feel like it, but, it's got, but God is always doing something bigger than what we can see. So we're going to talk about it, looking at our three points. Are you ready? Come on. <laughs> My notes say something funny question mark because this must have been a good pot, spot to try and put something funny to lighten up the message. But I've got to tell you, I've got nothing, church. I'm sorry. <laughs> we'll chalk it up to camp week and we're going straight into the points. All right, number one. A life on the altar is a consecrated life. To be consecrated, that just means to be set apart for devotion to God. To be dedicated in a holistic way to Him for His purposes, not our own. Christian does not equal consecrated, right? I can call myself a Christian without being set apart in devotion to God. But our Roman scripture isn't talking about people who view themselves as Christians on like a technicality. It is an appeal to people to be compelled by the love and mercy of God that we just talk about, talked about to take their everyday ordinary life, sleeping, eating, talking, working, thinking, dreaming, hoping, planning, and offer it to God to transform it so that our lives look a little bit less like everyone else in our culture and a little bit more like our crucified and resurrected Saviour. God wants to transform every part of you and me. But now there is transformation and there is pseudo-transformation or fake transformation or not actually transformation, transformation. And as we all probably know on some level, there's a lot of pseudo-transformation in the church at large because we are a group of people with belonging cues like any other group of people. What do I mean by that? I mean, come along long enough and you'll figure out when to sit, when to stand, when to clap, when to raise your hand, when to say amen, right? We eventually figure out that when there's a discussion at Connect Group, we can't go too far wrong if we say the answer is Jesus, right? <laughs> it's true, we figure it out. And there is, there is nothing wrong with that. There is nothing wrong with any of that. All of those things are important and Jesus is the only answer that we need, so we're good. But... It's pseudo-transformation if the change stops there. That looks a little bit like coming along, doing the thing, picking up on the belonging cues, changing our behaviour to fit in. And look, it's probably not a terrible way to live, right? It's probably better to like roll with church people and pick up on their behaviours than the behaviours of people who live a life of crime or something, I don't know. Um, and we might be satisfied with that because we're kind of, we're doing the right thing. We sort of semi-belong to a community, but not being hungry for deep change. Can I tell you, church, God is not satisfied with that. God is after your heart and your whole self. He does not care about pseudo-transformation. He does not care about behaviour modification. He cares about real, deep, legitimate transformation of who you are at your core. So might I ask, are you here tonight because of the belonging cues you know to imitate or are you here because of your transforming heart? Do you look more like Jesus today than you did last January? Not physically, characteristically. Abraham, he went from being someone who lied that his wife was his sister because he didn't trust that God could protect him in a land where people might want to take his wife and kill him. Another weird story. To someone who was ready to sacrifice his son in obedience to God because through the course of his life with God, God was legitimately transforming him at his core. 
So are we clutching less tightly to the things that are important to us and clutching more tightly to God than we were last January? A life of good behavioural belonging cues will not produce change and healing and restoration in the world. But a life of being transformed, a life of consecration, that will be a life that generates the goodness and the healing and the restoration of God in the world around you. And this is costly. Nobody in our culture is advocating for this, right? It's pretty much the exact opposite everywhere else. Deny your flesh and pursue holiness. Nobody is saying that outside of the church. But it is at this point, the point of consecration, life on the altar, that we change. And as He changes us, we further His kingdom and we change the world. On the altar is the safest place to be. All right, number two, a life on the altar is a committed life. Commitment seems to be a bit of a scary word these days, particularly for young people, maybe because it's such an embodied word, because you can't really be committed in your heart and mind, but not your body, right? You can't like say to your spouse, yeah, I'm your wife in my heart and mind, but I'm going to go live with that guy. Or a mother can't say to her infant, yeah, I'm your mom in my heart and mind, but I'm not going to feed you with my body or my resources, Right? It just doesn't work. And we understand that with people, but it's the same for God. It does not work to say, I love God in my heart and mind, so it doesn't matter what I do with my body. I love God in, um, in my heart and mind, so it doesn't matter, like my hands don't need to serve, my voice doesn't need to be an encouragement to others, my backside doesn't need to be in church. This extends to what we eat and how we exercise, how we rest. The idea that the spiritual is completely separate from the physical, that the intangible is important and the tangible is irrelevant, that I don't need to live an embodied faith is a lie. That is not the life that Jesus lived. Romans 12, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. There was a Jesuit priest who was once asked, where does faith reside? Is it in your head or in your heart? And the person was basically saying like, is faith more intellectual or is it more emotional? But his response was, your faith is rarely where your head is at and rarely where your heart is at. Your faith is where your backside is at. Inside what commitments are you sitting? Within what reality do you anchor yourself? It's profound, right? Intellect is important, feelings have their place, but ultimately your faith is found wherever you are. Your whole self, my whole self. Verse 2 in the NIV, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and improve what, what God's will is, His good, perfect and pleasing will. In the message, fix your attention on God, you'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognise what He wants from you and quickly respond to it. I don't want to get to the end of my life and find that I was committed to a lot of good things. I got the best education that my mind was capable of. I got the best job that my body was capable of. I traveled to all the right places. I watched all the right shows, ate at all the right spots, bought a house in the right suburb, raised a highly Instagrammable family, but find that I never became who God intended, that I missed the will of God in my life because I wasn't able to recognize what He wants from me. It's at the point of commitment, my mind for you, Lord, over the long haul, my body for you, Lord, over the long haul, my attention for you, Lord, over the long haul, that He can transform us. A life on the altar might mean cashing in all our chips, putting it all on the line. You're not in charge anymore. You're relinquishing control. But that is the point where He promises to make you into who you truly are, who you were meant to be.
on the altar is the safest place to be. All right, our last point. A life on the altar is a content life. Therefore, in view of God's mercy, the only acceptable response to the way that God loves us is our whole entire lives and our whole entire selves with no strings attached. But typically we have a lot of strings attached. I have so many strings. I was thinking about them all today. String everywhere. Uh, Pastor Jared came and preached at camp last night, which we loved. And our one thing that he said to us was, God's plan for your life will never be one in which He becomes unnecessary. Profound. He just said it in passing, very casually. So profound. I've been thinking about it since he said it. We spend so much of our time trying to get God to give us a life in which we don't even need Him. And this is the immaturity of our culture, not the well-formed maturity of God, from the message paraphrase. Yes, God wants to bless us absolutely, but He isn't trying to make us independent of Himself. He wants us to use the blessing for His glory and for good on the earth. So God, I pray, give me this job so that I can have enough money to live and to live well. Great prayer to pray but not if the underlying tone of it is, God, please set me up so I'm financially sufficient for the rest of my life and no concern can ever touch me and I don't have to trust you ever again, right? Or God, please give me a husband or wife. Great prayer to pray, but not if the underlying tone is, God, please give me a relationship that I will proceed to project all my need and all my desire onto and neglect you for and then stop serving others because I got what I wanted. God made us to need Him and depend on Him. And we often find ourselves trying to fill our soul level need for God with good things at a material level. And so we struggle with contentment in life. The Apostle Paul talks in Philippians 4 about how he's learned to be content in anything and everything, good, bad, great, ugly, whatever. And it's what we're working to, but I think a few of us are there. I'm certainly not there. And if I can make a suggestion tonight, perhaps we struggle with contentment because we are willing to settle for being confused about God instead of being open to the fact that maybe we're actually confused about what is good. I will explain. What do I mean? We get confused about God when we don't get what we are hoping for or believing for because how could God be good if I don't get the thing? Particularly if it is a good thing that I am needing and wanting. But might I put to us that the point of confusion isn't actually over God, it's over what's good. Because any sane person would say that Abraham setting his son up for a sacrifice is not good, objectively. But God knew more than any and every sane person to ever walk the earth. He knew what he was doing from love to prove his faithfulness, to keep Abraham from putting anything before God, to ultimately restore the whole world. See, sometimes the seemingly unanswered prayer is good because it opens up my eyes to the fact that God is with me in that place. And sometimes the pain is good because it leads me to more intimacy with Jesus. And sometimes the difficulty is good because in it God changes me to be more like Christ. Sometimes the death of the dream I hold dear is good because there is abundant life by God's definition on the other side of it. God is God. He is who He is, El Shaddai, God Almighty. He will do as He sees fit and what He pleases. And He knows what is actually good for us. We get confused about God when we can't see it. But this is the God who exists outside of space and time. Could it be possible, maybe, that He can see something that you can't see? 
Could it be possible that somehow He knows something that you don't know? Could it be possible that He is doing something that you cannot currently perceive? We don't need our version of good to be content. We just need God. And we find more of Him on the altar. I'm like very, very, very slowly learning about this, growing, baby steps. And I I think a good way to articulate it is, is this, or a helpful way to articulate it is this. In my youthful immaturity, I sought God for what He could give me. Good, good things, a good life, good relationships, peace, joy, flourishing. And there is nothing wrong with any of that. It is all beautiful and of God. But there comes a point when the good thing falls apart or the anxiousness won't stop rising or or what was once flourishing starts to look more like failure and I get stuck. And that is the point where we choose. Am I going to get confused about God or am I going to let Him redefine what good looks like in my life, right? Over time, as God is transforming me, now in my slightly less youthful and slightly less immature immaturity, still very immature, I'm learning to seek God just for who He is because He is teaching me and showing me that He is better than all of the good things. And He never leaves when they fall apart. The more we know God, the better He gets. And sometimes the meeting point is confusion and pain. Wherever you are, Jesus, that's where I want to be, right? Whatever it looks like, whatever it costs. And then because He is so kind, when we get there, we find things that we deem to be good and that we love and that we enjoy. A life on the altar might mean risking what we think is good, but finding God. And the alternative is clutching to what we think is good with everything that we have and still running the risk of losing it anyway because the world is broken and life is wild and we're broken, so we'll probably stuff it up. Or worse, finding that it was never actually as good as we thought it was going to be in the first place. On the altar is the safest place to be. A life on the altar is a life of consecration, commitment and contentment in the Lord. It is the safest place to be. I'm just going to close with one thought and then Pastor Amber is going to come. Coming as a living sacrifice and coming to the altar, it doesn't look like climbing onto a stone structure like it did for Isaac, ready to die. But it does look like dying to ourselves. Jesus said, if you want to follow me, take up your cross, follow Him. And it's different for everyone. The thing that we need to bring to the altar, the part of ourselves, it looks different person to person, season to season, heart to heart, body to body. God is after your heart. And like we read in our scripture, He's after our holiness. So what are we withholding from Him? Because our holiness is being set apart for Him. We all have little bits and pieces that we withhold. Maybe you could draw some to mind in your own life right now. We can't truly be a living sacrifice without laying it all down. You know, only I know, only I will know when I choose like polishing up a message or perfecting something for youth over sitting at the feet of Jesus. And maybe from the outside, I'll look like a very sacrificial person to you, but I have not given at the point of sacrifice for me. I have withheld in my heart. And we all have those points. Some of us are withholding our finances from God. Some of us, our time, our energy, maybe our service in the area where it's actually required of us. Maybe some of us need to stop serving so much because it's coming out of a wounded compulsion and God would like to heal us. Some of us are withholding our source of security. Some of us, our willingness to honour people. We're all about God, but not people. Some of us, our, our unwillingness to bring God, our pain, our grief, our frustration. Some of us, our entire selves, and we need to commit to God tonight.
So would you lay it down tonight? Would you lay yourself down tonight? The altar is the safest place to be. Let me just pray and then we'll sing. Church, why don't you stand with me? Thank you so much for joining us online today. Really great to have you with us. And special thanks to those also who give online. Your generosity is making the way for others to hear the message of Jesus, both here in Australia and around the world. If you enjoyed today's message, I'd love to encourage you to share this message with a friend, a workmate, a family member. And let's believe together that it will powerfully impact their life for good in Jesus' name. If you're unable to be with us at one of our church locations, uh, both here in Australia and around the world, please join us online every Sunday for Global Heart at Home on YouTube. God bless and have a great week.